Right, I'm going to start um, right at the start uh, of the book of Acts. Um, and it says this. And if you'd remembered this, you'd have got quicker in the chance to uh, play which bin is Lizzie in. Um, in my former book, Theophilus. There you go. Uh, oh, my iPad's just turned off. Uh, in my former book, Theophilus. I wrote about all Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. So that's the opening uh, 11 verses of the book of Acts. And there's some amazing stuff in there. Just in those 11 verses, there's so much we can read and so much uh, we can get our teeth into. But one thing that really stuck out to me when I was reading through for, for writing uh, our book um, was just this one little question. And it was something that I'd really glossed over kind of every time I've read Acts before, but it really stood out to me. And it was the question that the men dressed in white, who I'm assuming were angels and not just some random guys who just, you know, been in a Daz commercial or something like that. But they ask, why do you stand here looking into the sky? And you get the impression that um, the disciples were kind of just standing there and it's almost like, you know, at the end of a film, sometimes you get those really poignant uh, moments and kind of the, the camera just pans back as something's happened and you see kind of the main characters. Just you withdraw back into the distance and there they are, this poignant moment. And you kind of imagine that the disciples are just standing there. And it's sometimes a little bit like, have you ever done that thing where you wave someone off uh, on a plane or on a journey and stuff like that? And you, you kind of like standing there till you can't see it anymore and you can't see them anymore. And by that time, your arm's really aching because you've had to do that wave for ages, knowing that they probably can't see you anyway. But um, I kind of imagine that it was like that and they were standing there looking and just waiting and Jesus had gone up to heaven and they're kind of standing around and they're just looking. And then these guys come and they say, what are you doing? just standing here, looking up into the sky. And it, it made me think a little bit 
I don't know if you've ever heard, uh, there's a lot of stories like this. There was a film made about this and a book written about it. But there was a famous dog, apparently Scotland's most famous dog, uh, Greyfriars Bobby. Anybody ever heard of Greyfriars Bobby? Yeah, a few of you. Right. Greyfriars Bobby um, was a dog that belonged, um, as if you take the main version of this story, um, to a guy called John Gray, who worked for Edinburgh uh, City Police as a night watchman. And when John Gray died, he was buried in the churchyard at Greyfriars uh, in the old town of Edinburgh. Then Bobby, his dog, um, spent the rest of his life um, sitting at his master's grave. Uh, in 1867, um, the Lord Provost of Edinburgh, Sir William Chambers, uh, who was also the director of the Scottish Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, paid for Bobby's dog license and gave him a collar, which is now kept in a museum in Edinburgh. He's said to have sat by this grave for 14 years, although some people say that he actually died about halfway through and they replaced him with another dog. Um, but that's, you know, that takes a bit of the romance around. And it is a really sweet and romantic story, but actually... When I look at it, I think actually it's quite a sad story. You know, if this dog did stay there for 14 years, sat on his master's grave, waiting to die, and when he did eventually die, either for the first time or the second time, we're not quite sure, uh, he was buried just near that grave in that churchyard. But it's quite sad because this dog spent all of his life just sat there and not doing what dogs should be doing, like being out and chasing cats and getting his you know, belly rubbed and going for walks and you know, bouncing around crazily like uh, Molly does uh, for Steve and Hayley. Um, and it made me think a little bit like that. There was a danger that the disciples just looked to where Jesus had been. And then they hung around a little bit, kind of a bit lost, just waiting there without any real purpose, just looking to where Jesus had been in that same way that this dog, Greyfriars Bobby, was just kind of sitting and looking to where his master had been buried. It would have been a missed life and a missed opportunity. And they moved on. The disciples moved on because they were asked that question. You know, what are you just standing here for, looking up at the sky? So they move on. And as we read on through that first chapter, it tells us that they went and for some time they prayed. Basically, it's all it tells us they did. They went away and they prayed. They needed to move on. They needed to move on into what was next for them. So they spent time praying. The other really important thing that we learn on day one, if we read chapter one on day one, is this idea that uh, Jesus gives this instruction to the disciples, to his followers, that they should wait in Jerusalem until they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So they did. They waited. And it got me thinking about the fact that we're not very good at waiting. Uh, I started watching... Uh, a documentary program where they got a family and they got them to live through the decades from, I think it was 1920 or something, eating what British families ate. 
um, in those decades. So they spent a week doing each of these decades. Uh, and as it went through week by week in this documentary, the food started to get more and more convenient, more and more instant. Um, it started to get so they could just get it on the table like that to the point where so little preparation was involved that they could all eat different meals and they didn't even bother sitting down together. And we're a little bit like that as a culture, that we've moved towards instant stuff. We get really, really upset if we wait for our burger in McDonald's for more than about two and a half minutes. Have you noticed that? You get people standing there as if, like, this is a long time to wait. Can you imagine, you know, people in their 30s uh, kind of complaining that it took them three and a half minutes to get their hot dinner? Um, it wouldn't have happened because we've moved into this world where we want things instantly. We don't want to wait. We want to have an instruction and we want to get on with it straight away. I got frustrated yesterday because Ruth bought me a chainsaw. Josh, you are not using it. Um, and I put it all together, and then it said, and now put the oil in. And I was like, Ruth, did you buy any oil? No. <laughs> I didn't know you had to buy any oil. And I was frustrated because I couldn't use my chainsaw straight away. But I think as a culture, we're starting to move towards actually understanding the value of waiting again. And it's starting to come into culture. We went through a thing where everything was about fast food and about takeaways and getting everything straight away and instant coffee uh, and tea bags that brewed your tea even faster and moved it around so you could have your cup of tea really, really quickly. And actually now we're starting to get into this thing where we're happy to wait for a decent cup of coffee. We'd much rather... Uh, wait for a decent cup of coffee than have a spoon of instant. Or we'd rather have a meal that's really been cooked well, that's been looked after. You know, we like that meat. We can tell the, the value in the meat that's gone through a process which has been about waiting and it's been hung, you know, 28-day matured steak and this kind of thing, right? And it's better when we wait because life has these rhythms in it where we have to wait. And life's not designed. God didn't design the world to be something that's instant and just happens. The disciples had to be obedient. They had to follow Jesus' instruction to wait. And when they did wait, everything happened as it should. I wrote in the study, you know, it would have been a very, very different opening chapter of the book if they'd have just gone straight off. Not waited. Oh, we can't be bothered waiting here. I'm sure it'll be okay. We'll just shoot off. Because they would have missed the power and the gift of the Holy Spirit. You know, when we wait, we can enjoy the journey. One of the most valuable things mom ever taught me as a child was to enjoy the journey when we were going on holiday. Um, we used to make that journey. As soon as we got in the car, it was part of the holiday. You know, and I think we can appreciate the journey sometimes if you've ever been on the Seven Valley Railway or something like that and you compare a lovely trip on a steam uh, locomotive to a trip down to London on Pendolino at like 110 miles an hour or whatever it is uh, and leaning all over the place. You can appreciate the journey. You can appreciate that actually things are worth waiting for and slowing down for. And that comes to us when we think about waiting for God. And maybe you've heard that phrase, let's just wait 
on the Lord. Let's just wait on God. Let's wait on the Holy Spirit. See what we're going to do. Now, we're going, as you saw on Church News again, we're going down to Soul Survivor uh, with the youth, and we're taking some people from some other churches. I think there's about 40 of us going all together. Uh, and then in the venue, in the main meetings, there'll be about 5,000 uh, young people and youth leaders, uh, and they'll be around there. And we spend lots of time in those meetings, and we have lots of time that we don't always get in church, and time that is set for waiting. And often, uh, Mike Pilavachi, who's leading the meetings, is the pastor at Soul Survivor Watford, will kind of just sit down on the front of the stage. And he says, now we're going to wait. We're going to wait to see what God is doing. Let's wait on the Holy Spirit. And he sits there. And it's quiet. And then maybe something will start happening. Almost like a kind of ripple across some of the people in there. And God will start meeting with people. And the Holy Spirit will start doing things in people. Sometimes... People might cry. Sometimes God's doing something and kind of maybe he's laying something on their heart. Uh, A real burden for people. You know, last year at one point there was a time when people were given a real burden on their heart for evangelism and talking to people who were lost. And in doing that, lots of them were just so overcome with passion and love for people who needed to be saved, who needed to know Jesus, that they just wept. And that was something that God was doing. And that was something that we, we experienced because we waited and we spent that time to wait. Something else that when we wait on God um, is that we need to wait with an expectancy. If you look around that room at Soul Survivor, you will see people excited about waiting now, I know in Britain we're very good at queuing and we're very, you know, specific about the way we queue up for things, but we're not very good at waiting. But people are excited about waiting to see what will happen. There's a sense of anticipation. There's a sense of saying, God, what are you going to do? This is going to be exciting. So we need to give time to wait. Sometimes in church, because we, we're, on, we're on the clock and we're thinking through this, we'll say, oh, we just spend a bit of time waiting for God. Uh, and then we'll, we'll just pray in our own hearts. And then about 30 seconds later, when it seems we've done with waiting, uh, and, you know, it, all the silence is a little bit awkward, we'll just kind of plow on and, and get on with it. Sometimes, I think even in our structured services, sometimes we're going to have to say at times, God, let's just wait and see what you want to do. Um, but we need to wait with expectancy. We need to give attention to what God is doing. So when we're waiting... And we're expecting God to move. We need to actually concentrate on him and look to him rather than being distracted. And then we need to give him room to do what it is he wants to do. Give him our time. Give him our space. You know, um, one of the things that uh, the New Wine Network um, talks about, which uh, we're part of as a church leadership, um, is about this idea of being naturally supernatural. Okay, I like the fact that the word supernatural, uh, if you break it down, uh, is actually the same as the word extra normal. 
Okay, so supernatural is the same as extra normal. So as Christians, uh, we should be extra normal. Okay, but that also means means outside of the normal, outside of the natural. Okay, a, a kind of real souped-up version of the natural. We should expect things to be out of the ordinary. We should expect signs and wonders. When you read through the book of Acts, signs and wonders, these miracles that happen, the way that God's power is displayed is a massive tool uh, for witnessing to his news. So we should expect to be supernatural. Okay, I want to read to you again from Acts 3, and it's verses 1 to 12. It says this, One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now, a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave him his attention expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said this, Silver or gold, I do not have. But what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And taking him by the hand, he helped him up. And instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and he began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the, in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we have made this man walk? And then he goes on and he begins to tell them about the good news about Jesus. He preaches. And as we read through Acts together as a church, as we just see what it says in this book, we're going to see this is a recurring theme, that something miraculous happens because people step out in faith, because they're filled with the Holy Spirit and his power works through them, because something miraculous happens. People's attention is caught and they pay attention to what is going on. And when that attention comes to the followers of Jesus, they preach about his good news and they witness to who he is. So what can we learn? We need to be asking for miracles. We need to be believing in a God who gives us the power to be naturally supernatural. Because if we don't believe that God can do these things, if we don't believe that God can do miracles, that can give us signs and wonders to accompany what we're telling people about him, then do you know what? That just kind of cuts my Bible in half. And I don't want to be a Christian who believes half the Bible because I don't see the point in that. 
I don't want to be a, a person who follows uh, a God who I don't believe is capable of doing amazing things. Because then, kind of, what's the point? So if we believe in this God who's powerful, we need to be asking God for miracles. We need to be asking God to heal people. Okay, We know that it doesn't always happen. But when it does, that's when we need to give testimony to his power. Okay, We need to get excited about what God does. Do you know, we, um, we have a meeting called Breathe. Uh, and it's a little bit based on this idea from Soul Survivor that I talked about about this time of waiting and just giving God time to do what he wants. So if you come to Breathe uh, on its one Thursday slot in the month, you'll find that it's different most times you come. Sometimes we'll worship together. Sometimes we'll sit together and we'll pray. Sometimes we'll just ask God to speak to us. Sometimes we'll go out from here and we'll go out into the town and then uh, and last Thursday, this Thursday just gone, uh, we went out and we walked and we prayed uh, down around by the LMS and along the canal and down onto um, the Saltwells Estate and back around and we came up by the Golden Cross. And just as we were coming up the hill, um, Chris and Laura came down the hill in their car and turned to come and see what we were doing. Uh, and Laura's not very well at the moment. Um, so we prayed for Laura, and that was a real privilege, just in that moment, to be led to a place where somebody in our community, and you know, Chris and Laura live over Sedgley Way, so it was great just to have them passing at that moment, and we were able to pray for Laura, and really minister to Laura in that time, and that was really encouraging, and we pray before we go out that God will speak to us, and maybe that he would give us a picture, or he would give us a word for someone, because isn't it great to be able to speak into somebody's life uh, in a real kind of deliberate way. Uh, and, and for them to know that God's given you a word of knowledge maybe about what they're going through so that they can understand that, you know, not only does God know about everything that's going on in their life, but God can tell other people about what is going on in their life. And um, the last time we went out doing a prayer walk, uh, and I've shared this with Albert already. Um, we went out and I prayed and we were sat upstairs in the office before we went out. And as we were praying before we went, God gave me a real clear picture of somebody uh, in a hat. It was like a trilby hat, just like Albert's that he wears. Uh, and as I was asking God what this meant, I saw this man who was wearing the hat and I couldn't see who it was, but he's chest and his neck there were flames kind of licking up his chest and his neck and uh, you know I was thinking it could just be my imagination or God could be putting this on my heart for a reason so my advice to you in those kind of situations if you seem to see a picture if God seems to be putting something on your heart share it with people uh, just in case it is and don't worry about it if it's not but we went round and we prayed and we walked around Netherton 
And uh, we were desperately looking for a man in a trilby. We were convinced we were going to find this man in a trilby. Uh, and we looked everywhere, and every time we saw a man in a hat in the distance, we were really excited, and it just turned out it, was, it wasn't a trilby or anything like that. And I, I have to say I was a little bit disappointed when I got back that we hadn't found trilby man. Um, we'd prayed in lots of places, and we'd chatted to some people and prayed for them, and we'd gone past different people's houses as we were walking from church and thought, let's pray pray for them. Uh, and we'd gone past Albert's house and Cynthia's and we'd prayed for them as we'd walked past and we'd gone off up. But we didn't find Trilby Man. The next day I went into Netherton. I think it was with Libby and Luke to get some lunch. Uh, and we went into Netherton to get some lunch. And as we were getting out the car I looked over the road and there was Albert. And Albert was wearing his Trilby hat. And I thought, do you know what? I'm going to have to go and speak to him and just talk to him about this hat. And I said to him, I said to Albert, I said, look, we were praying last night and I had this picture of somebody wearing a hat just like yours uh, and there were flames licking up his chest and his neck. And Albert turned to me and he said, last night I had real pains in my chest. Felt like it was on fire and there was a pain all going through my chest. And we'd prayed for Albert at about that time as we'd passed his house. And that really encouraged me. Because it showed me that although I hadn't kind of, you know, I'd been disappointed because I thought I'd got it wrong. But actually God had spoken and God had caused us to pray um, for the man in the hat. Even though we didn't know who the man in the hat was. And it was Albert. And that was a real encouragement to know then, you know, I'm sure for Albert as well, that God was speaking to somebody else to get them to pray for him, you know, in a supernatural way. When we share these stories, when we share what God does... It encourages people. It encourages people. There's a bit later on it says that, uh, uh, talking about the disciples, and it says after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And sometimes it's kind of that other way around, that the signs and wonders follow when we declare God's word and when we speak about who God is. God shows up and he does stuff. Um, Acts 4, 31, 35. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, bought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. What a great picture that is of what it is to have real community, to have real relationships and real commitment to one another and to their cause. No one was in need because people just gave of what they had and shared it out. Real inspiration to us. And then a little bit further on, we get a kind of fly in the ointment. And there's the story in Acts 5, 1 to 10, of Ananias and Sapphira. It says, now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but bought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit? 
and have kept for yourself some of the money you receive for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied just to human beings, but to God. And when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. Great fear seized all who heard what had happened, and then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that's the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they'll carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, finding her dead, carried her out, buried her beside her husband. I'd never really cottoned on when I'd read that story when I was younger, that it wasn't that the disciples were demanding everything of Ananias and Sapphira. They weren't demanding everything. It was the fact that Ananias and Sapphira were saying they'd given everything, but actually they were keeping something back. You know, Peter says, what, you know, wasn't it yours to do with what you wanted? Basically, why did you need to say this was everything? Why did you try and lie? Why did you try and make yourself look good? You know, he teaches us, be truthful in what we're giving. Don't try and make out that it's more um, than what it is. Don't make a big deal of making easy sacrifices and make out that they were tough. If you're going to say you're making sacrifices, make ones that matter to you. Because God is interested in honest giving. Just coming to the end now of, of what I'm saying and to the end of our week's study uh, and it be yesterday's and today's um, and Acts 6, 8 to 15. This is this. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freed men, as it was called. Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we've heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. God had given him peace in the middle of all that. And Stephen's a great example to us of what it is to follow Christ, to do what God calls us to by imitating him. You know, he was, um, he was, people couldn't stand up to the wisdom that he had. Just the same as when you read the Gospels, it says about Jesus. They brought him before the council, the Sanhedrin, 
just as they brought Jesus before the Sanhedrin. Because they couldn't actually accuse him properly. They stirred up false accusers, just like they did against Jesus. They took him out of the city to kill him, just like they did to Jesus. And Acts 7, uh, 59 and 60 says, While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Jesus had said, Father, receive my spirit into your hands. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Of course, we remember Jesus saying, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And when he said this, he fell asleep, it says. So many similarities, but also there are differences Because when Jesus is accused, he stays quiet. When Stephen is accused, he speaks in order to speak the gospel and to testify to Jesus. Jesus dies to bring us grace and that ultimate sacrifice. Stephen dies to bring glory to Jesus. And the witness was so strong because we read later on and we'll read it later on in Acts that previously there had been false messiahs and when they'd been put to death, their followers had just dispersed and gone away because why would they stand up for something that was false? Why would they put their own lives on the line for something that was false? This witness was so strong. Because the followers of Jesus didn't use a get-out clause. They were wholehearted. They had a a no-holds-barred approach to life and death. And it spoke volumes about the reality of what it was they believed. And right at the end of this week's study, we're introduced to a guy who's doing no more than standing in the background watching. And his name's Saul. And it's not going to be Saul for too much longer. But it's almost like that teaser trailer. It's that moment in a film where suddenly someone gets focused on. And you know that during that film, they're going to become a character who's woven really strongly into the narrative of what's going to happen. We're introduced to the next bit. And as we go on tomorrow, and as we carry on reading and we come back together, Again next week, and Ruth's going to talk to us about these next seven chapters that we're going to go through. He's going to come into this story more, but it's exciting. It's an exciting story when we look at what these guys were doing, the lessons that we can learn about the attitude that these early Christians, these early followers of Jesus had something we need to learn from. I hope you're excited about reading this. I know some of you have come and told me you've really enjoyed reading that um, this book. If you haven't had a copy of the Acts Bible Study because you weren't here last week, you can get it. It's pretty easy to catch up. It's short. Uh, It's not written to be kind of in-depth just to get us into reading our Bible and just to make us think a little bit. So you get one of those. Come and see me at the end if you haven't had one. But we're just going to pray and we're just going to ask God to to really uh, 
just put in our hearts and concrete in our hearts the things that we've already learned, but also to open us up to learning more from him as we read together. Let's pray. Lord God, we want to thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege of having this written down. Lord God, we thank you for those who have gone before us to be a witness to you. Lord God, thank you that as you told them, they would be witnesses in Judea, in Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. Thank you, Lord God, that in them following you, Lord God, and their story being written down in your word, they're still witnessing today to us. And Lord God, we thank you for the countless others who've been part of the growth and the journey and the life of your church since that time to now. And Lord God, we pray for those who will come into your church in the future. And Lord, now for us, here, now, this morning, we just ask that you would bless to us the word that we've read and that you'd really open our hearts and our minds to study your word over the next week to come back excited about what you are doing through us being church together and getting into your Bible. I ask it in Jesus' name and to bring glory to it. Amen.